Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hi, everyone. If you haven't already done so, please go to patreon.com slash indoctrination. It is so much appreciated. And there are some wonderful things that people who are supporters of the show receive. They get bi-weekly special bonus episodes and merchandise. And there's an opportunity for us to share notes and talk to each other on Patreon. And so please go to patreon.com slash indoctrination. And for as much as you want, or as little as $2 a month, you can become a supporter of the show and receive some of the bonus content and some of the goodies that we have to show our appreciation, our true appreciation for you. So today, I am very happy to have a colleague and friend on the show, Ashlyn Hilliard. Ashlyn is a cult intervention specialist helping families with loved ones in cultic or high control groups or relationships. And she is the face behind a new organization called People Leave Cults. She completed her master's in the psychology of coercive control in early 2022 and conducted research on the relationship between reproductive coercion, psychologically abusive environments, and the extent of group identity in a sample of those who have left cultic groups. Ashlyn has previous experience working for multiple nonprofit settings in the field of cult recovery. Most recently, this has included working as director of events for the International Cultic Studies Association. During that time, she facilitated workshops and webinars and conferences for those in touch with multiple aspects of the cult phenomenon, including therapists, former members, legal professionals, media representatives, academics, and others. Previous to her work with ICSA, she also worked as a case manager in Salt Lake City, Utah, for a nonprofit holding out help, where she was involved in the front lines of helping individuals leaving diverse polygamous communities out west. She currently enjoys living in Portland, Oregon, where she is a volunteer co-organizer with the Spiritual Abuse Forum for Education, S-A-F-E, SAFE. It's a meetup for those who have left or are considering leaving high-demand religious groups in the local community. She's a wonderful person, a great person to talk to, a great person to know. Here's Ashlyn now. I am so happy to be able to have Ashlyn with me today on the show. Ashlyn, we've known each other for a while and I can't say enough good things about you and your wisdom, you being willing to share your personal experiences, but also what you've learned along the way. And now, you know, you've gone into being able to put something together where you can provide a resource to others, which does not at all surprise me that that's what <laughs> you're doing with this. That that was uh, the route that that uh-huh, Right. I mean, it's the, you are the, let's see what I can find out about this and let me see how I can share it with others kind of person. That's very respectable, but also it's 
very nice to be able to have people in the world who are wanting to do that. And so before we get into wherever this conversation takes us, because yeah, we're both free form kind of people. If you don't mind just introducing yourself and talking a little bit about you and a little bit about your history, and then we'll get more into the details. Oh, sure. Well, thank you so much for having me on. So my name is Ashlyn Hilliard and I live in Portland, Oregon. I've been in the cult recovery field now for probably about five years. Yeah, about five years in different ways, in different functions. I was born and raised attending a very conservative Church of Christ, and that has had influence in my family um, for multiple generations now. I attended the college for those within the Church of Christ. You know, it was very important to my family that I go there. And of course, very important that I find a husband there. As some of you may know, if you're if you're listening, if you came from a Christian-based group such as this, there's a lot of pressure on that. I did find my husband, but we were best friends and we still are. And we actually were in the process of deconstructing from the group while we were in school together. And we left, moved back to my home state of Utah. And from there, I had a couple of years where I was just kind of wandering. Um, I knew that I wanted to make an impact with those who had um, survived totalist groups, uh, spiritually abusive groups. I had no idea how. Um, my journey started by actually um, coming across the International Cultic Studies Association. They were asking for a call for papers for the 2019 Philadelphia Conference, the annual conference. And I put in an application and spoke um, with Mark Giles actually on Mormonism. It was something to do with understanding so many years ago now, but it was like understanding the how the narrative surrounding Mormonism has changed, how it's communicated to members in an effort to retain and recruit um, people. And I also spoke a lot about my work at that conference with polygamous groups out West. I had just gotten a job as a case manager working at a nonprofit out in the Salt Lake City Valley that, you know, felt like my skills, uh, being able to relate to a lot of these women was particularly helpful in their journeys out of this group. And so I worked in a really high intensity setting there for uh, just over a year. People were very interested in me from the International Cultic Studies Association still. It just so happened that they were in the process of hiring or looking for someone to hire on. And, you know, most of you know me through my work with ICSA. That's how I received that role with ICSA. I'm just wondering when you were asked to come on board to the International Cultic Studies Association, you know, I'm sure that was pretty heady because you're thinking, wow, this is uh, very different from the way I thought my life was going to be going when I was growing up. Yeah, it was pretty surreal. It definitely further cemented me, I think, as sort of the black sheep of the family. <laughs> Uh, because I'm sure my parents were just like, what are you doing? You know, what is this career you're pursuing? Like, you know, there's so many stick, there's so much stigma and taboo attached to that. And to be honest, I didn't really know a whole lot about ICSA at the time. You know, I was, my only interaction with ICSA was the Philadelphia conference. And I actually moved to Florida for like, I believe it was close to five months to do um, training with the director there in Naples before ending up in Portland, Oregon, where I am now. So I put a lot 
of my like life and time into that role when it was so, you know, new and fresh. It was a pretty wild transition in my life coming into that. And as you know, Rachel, you've navigated the cult recovery world for years now. Um, it is very complex. There are many personalities. There are many different specialties within the field. There, you know, there's so much knowledge to learn. And for someone like me, not really knowing anything coming into that, it was a disadvantage, but also an advantage because I was able to sort of formulate my own opinions as I went along through meeting people, you know, and that was, I think, really good. Yeah. So just to say something about that, which is not something I've actually talked about before on this podcast, but just the world of the people who are trying to address this issue in the world, as with any uh, organization or any kind of microcosm. So it's going to have its own personalities, as you're saying. And sometimes there are going to be people who are going to seem at odds with each other or who really are at odds with each other. And I remember being you know, green in this, like in the early nineties and having the people there whose names, you know, um, I hope continue to be recognized through the ages, like Dr. Margaret Singer and others and people who I really looked up to the people I gravitated most towards like Herb Rosedale, who's this wonderful man who had directed or had been the president of ICSA and was an attorney. And the people again, who I gravitated towards were the ones who were not caught in the weeds, who were not into who you should like and who you shouldn't and who's looking at this the right way and who's looking at this the wrong way. But instead, let's zoom out and look at this in the, in a big way in terms of a world context. What does this mean about us as human beings? And what does it mean about our vulnerabilities? And how do we help people who have gotten ensnared or are trying to leave something where they're trying to define who they are? And it wasn't how it was defined before. And they realized it's, it's not who they are. They need to sort of figure that out, which I want to come back to with you. So I, yeah, I've had to navigate that, uh, because I remember leaving a conference sometimes and saying, oh, right. Yeah. So I'm not, I'm supposed to like that person, but not like that person. And then I thought, wait, what, <laughs> wait, why, why, why is it about that at all? So I, I think it's good, you know, when people find their way and still, even with those personalities, there is still a lot to be learned from all of them. Totally. It's, um, you know, and I, I had some experience with, um, navigating personalities and things like that, even when I was still working in Utah, because there was competitiveness for funding with the nonprofit that I worked for, because there was just so few nonprofits that helped, uh, former polygamists, uh, specifically. And so, I had a taste of that. And that was sort of my first experience within the helping professional world, understanding how, you know, in my mind, I'm like, why can't we just, you know, help these people collaborate, find ways to get along. But I was just, it, it was hard to not feel disappointed seeing people sort of, you know, go at each other in the ways that they did, either because they were jealous or because they wanted more media or because for funding, it's just X amount of reasons it goes on. But that was when I first started feeling those frustrations. So I feel like coming into ICSA, not having necessary, like having that expectation of, okay, just because we're in a helping professional field doesn't mean that navigating this field is going to be smooth. And it really taught me 
a lot in interacting with all kinds of different professionals, of course, interacting with survivors of many different types of groups, but especially the professionals. Um, I've learned so much in, you know, what, what does it mean for me to pick my battles? What are my boundaries? How do I form my assumptions? It's challenged a lot of my personal growth and has, you know, pushed me in a lot of ways personally. So that's been really good. But I do think um, for you, I mean, you know, the fact that you jumped in and you were so fundamental, I think, as an anchor for a lot of people, a lot of people could relate to you and the fact that you had had a personal experience of needing to move away from something that was very powerful, that was woven into your childhood and your early adult life too, and also was multi-generational. So I'm wondering if we can talk a little bit about that, about if you have found that that makes it different for people who are leaving something where it isn't that they got involved later on, but they're really leaving kind of the mold, the multi-generational mold. Yeah. um, I'd be happy to speak to that. And during my time with ICSA, um, I helped, um, I sometimes actually spoke and gave presentations on different issues in having uh, multi-generational involvement and how that could affect recovery. And it's different in everyone's story and case, certainly, but something that you know, I often have to explain to people. And something that I also saw with those who had experienced polygamous groups, because typically that was a heavy multi-generational influence. You know, these people were born in. I did hear a couple of stories where women actually joined, but that was very, very rare. You know, we're dealing with whole cultic populations that are born and raised, and it's this very multi-generational thing. And to me, my biggest takeaway with that is its effect on family systems. Of course, when you, you know, if you were a, uh, someone who went and joined a group, I hate the term joined, but I think you guys know what I mean. (laughs) If you end up, you know, uh, getting recruited into a group that can disrupt the family system, you know, that can create a lot of chaos, just like being born and raised in a particular kind of ideology and then separating the chaos, you know, that extends whether you're born or raised or not. But when it is that generational influence, that generational hold, you're looking at how does this family system sort of, you know, like your departure from the group affects everyone within the family system and can bring about a lot of challenges, even extended family members. You know, when someone may have gotten recruited and they come back into the family or start having relationships with certain family members again. It's a much different scenario than those who maybe don't want to identify with the ideology that they were born and raised in. Um, It's like, what do those relationships look like moving forward? How can those be changed maybe in in a healthy way? Um, What boundaries need to be implemented? It's just, it, it's effect on family systems. You know, it just doesn't affect me. It affects siblings, parents, grandparents, and how maybe they want to interact with you, how you want to interact with them. It changes a lot moving forward. It does change a lot. I think also when you're raised to care about how you're perceived, 
then not unlike a lot of people who have a certain kind of reputation that they feel that they need to uphold, whether it is as the good kid or the good student or the good whatever, how do you hold on to that? And what do you deal with the anxiety that comes up when you're suddenly leaving something and you know, because you know how other people have been thought about and talked about when they've left, that that's going to land on you and just weathering that storm, that feels daunting. It's so interesting because, you know, me asking these questions about what I want to believe and do I believe in this? Do I not believe in this? Um, all those questions are also very typical of someone just coming into their own adulthood, right? You know, we're like questioning and stripping away a lot, but there's a lot more pressure <laughs> associated with uh, sort of choosing the right path, so to speak, you know, and if you question or sort of depart from that, it, it can certainly cause a lot of chaos within family systems, certainly. So knowing that your changes are going to impact other people um, can also be very difficult if you, you know, have the sense that you're feeling responsible, etc. But I wonder also just inside how you dealt with the anxiety of leaving something where you were, I'm sure, told about what would happen to you what would happen to your soul? What would happen to a lot of things should you leave? And so maybe to start with, what were the fears that you were raised with about leaving? Yeah. Um, a lot of, a lot of that was mostly just spiritual, spiritual fears of if I didn't identify with this or attend this particular church or do what this particular group wants me to do, um, or profess what they believe within that context, it was, um, I was going to hell, you know, and there was a lot of like spiritual pressure and I was, I was extremely fearful of that. It got to the point where I knew I had to sort of just walk away when I started having anxiety and panic attacks in church. And that for me was like, my breaking point. Like I just, I, I can't, I, I continued to attend for a while, even after I had sort of mentally left the group to remain in contact with my family members. I, you know, I moved back to Utah. I was in the same state as them again. And I didn't want to not attend that church with them for a while. And so I tried, I tried to sort of just disassociate from my feelings and I, I just couldn't do it anymore. And we all kind of have our breaking points. And I don't know if it was one thing for me, but that was um, sort of a microcosm of how I was feeling overall in these different stages was experiencing this intense anxiety, this fear of hell. For a while after I left, uh, my partner and I, we kind of church hopped, you know, went to different churches. Sometimes that felt really good because it was a totally different environment, but we could still have that reassurance, that low, like Christian reassurance of like our souls were taken care of, you know? And I found that almost in whatever church setting we were in, I easily sort of became this chameleon where I so took on and adapted uh, whatever new environment I was in. And, um, Looking back on that, that was kind of dangerous. You know, we talk about coal hopping. Church hopping can sometimes be the same way if you've left a spiritually abusive church where you sort of can so easily just take in and be influenced by new and fresh, even just Christian ideals. You know, there's there's groups that I attended even for a short while where I look back on, I'm just like, I I cannot believe that I attended there. And it took years, you know. So I was church hopping for a good like 
maybe two years. And um, since then, I hadn't, I haven't attended and just am very agnostic about faith in general. And that's been for the past several years now. So, but that, that sort of shedding of those like spiritual fears. And of course, things still come up. Um, I had a dear friend who died very unexpectedly a few months ago. And she was like one of the best people who I knew. So for someone to die, who is like the best of the best, it often makes you question a lot. And I did have those fears sink in and it was like a Christian funeral. So I watched the live stream Christian funeral and it definitely brought back a lot of those fears and sort of trauma and triggers. And that was very difficult. So I kind of had to like reset after that. So it can still happen. Yeah, it can still happen. It's interesting too, because so much of what you're talking about is transformation. So here, hitting a reset, shifting from believing in God to becoming agnostic, and then it remains to be seen where that goes. But I think knowing that that's your choice is the important piece of that, and that there are people who will want to have a relationship with something, someone at certain times in their lives, and they might not think about it or need it at other times, but that it really is personal and that there isn't a a right way or a wrong way, i.e. there isn't fear that should be attached to that. Um, The other part about being a chameleon is interesting because if you have been raised to fit in and not stand out, and then be an acceptable part of a community with conformity, then yeah, you become gifted at becoming a chameleon and walking in. And I'm sure, you know, you weren't even aware of it until you suddenly noticed that you were going to be speaking in a similar tone, standing in a similar way, wearing similar things, and that that was just going to happen in a very kind of subconscious way because you don't want to be the odd man or odd woman out and you don't want to stand out. And so I think then taking the risk of saying, actually, no, I think I want to dress like this, or I want to believe like this, or I want to use a swear word or I want whatever would have seemed really out there. I'm sure it can cause a sense of freedom, but also a lot of um, heart palpitations the first couple of times you do it. Yeah. Um, you know, and speaking of being a chameleon, I mean, I even, um, at one of the churches that we were at for a while, I made the decision to get sort of rebaptized because I had sort of been convinced that the version of Christianity that I grew up in was not, uh, was very power and control based, which, you know, granted it was, um, that I should be rebaptized and, oh my goodness, I'm part of the dunk twice club, uh, so to speak. And, you know, that, that was a big deal. And it even led to me trying to convince my partner, you should get dunk twice too. And we're so reflective on that. Now we like sit and laugh about it. Like, Hey, you remember that time, which I'm so grateful for, but it really speaking of family systems, my family was just like, what are you doing? (laughs) They were like, you left this church and you were unhappy and now you're getting baptized again. And it was, they could see how quick it was. They could see how quick that I had taken on this sort of new version of faith. And I think that was really confusing and it was very hurtful to them. And it was fast. You know, it was, it was me being a chameleon and 
I didn't really understand what was happening. And they also didn't really understand what was happening. And so this kind of comes back to how it can affect the family system, your journey, whatever that looks like, leaving a church or a destructive group, or it can often be so complicated. For me, it wasn't just I was in the church and then I wasn't. It was very slow steps of deconstructing my faith and what I believed. And it also aligns with, I noticed, um, you know, it also aligned with me questioning my sexual identity about the same amount of time as sort of questioning these spiritual things and then feeling further and further discontentment within the churches that I was in because they weren't, you know, pro-gay people or queer people. And so that sort of questioning went hand in hand with my journey as well out of all that. Right. Okay. Yes. I want to be able to come back to that as, you know, more of the conversation about um, sort of self-definition, which also is so much about self-acceptance. But um, I'm wondering first, when you were talking about having gone back to or moved back to Utah, there are a lot of people who are really concerned about running into the people from the church that they were raised in, not knowing how to handle those interactions, being back in that environment, what that's going to be like if they have to show themselves to have their life fully together so they can kind of prove that it was okay for them to leave and that they're fine. There's sort of a lot that people carry around with them when they are within close physical proximity again to the people they were raised with. And I wonder what that was like for you. Graduating from college, going back to that environment and going back to that church, which we attended for most of my childhood, there's only technically like three churches of Christ in the whole state that would be seen as like, okay, churches to attend, you know, that are like legit churches of Christ, according to the group. Um, and three is a very small number within the whole city of Utah. This, this particular belief system is more, um, popular and widespread in the Bible belt. And so the people who comprised it in Utah were actually a lot of military families, like the family that I grew up in, because these military families would move. And of course, a lot of their community comes through this group. So you can see how comforting it would be for military families who are used to moving all the time to gather as a small group in, in a state that doesn't have a lot of us, so to speak, you know, those involved in the group. So it was weird going back into a church that I had spent so many years in. It was complicated. Once we had left and there was an announcement made to the church that Ryan and I, my partner, had left, we really didn't hear or see from anyone um, within the church. It wasn't a small enough town situation where we were just running into people. The church itself was very small. So it really was just that. We really didn't have to worry about those encounters. People just didn't really reach out once we had left. When we were in the questioning phase, of course, people were reaching out, asking us to stay and you know this and that, but it's kind of weird in that way. But I'm grateful for it because um, you, you don't really have to worry about that. It's interesting because I've heard a couple of people talk about that it felt like some relief. And for other people, they felt a little insulted. <laughs> like, what are we forgotten about? You know, but didn't we matter to these people? Yeah, we mattered a lot when we were, you know, still deciding. And then as soon as we had left, we were pretty much cut off. There was no interaction or reach out or anything. So it was, it was bizarre. It was just kind of bizarre, that feeling. 
I'm sure. And I think going to where you started the conversation by getting involved originally, I think, with ICSA and others, it is important actually to develop a community. You can shift from community to community, but I think having those alliances and meeting new people and, and having people to commiserate with, if that's something that you're familiar with and you're used to and you feel like you've been kind of banished from or you've left so many people in your life, it is actually important to have new communities. Yeah. And I feel like my first sort of new community outside of that church was through the nonprofit that I worked for out in Utah. Um, I found so much of my community with those women and I loved, absolutely loved working with the teenage boys. Uh, They were sometimes the most difficult uh, behavioral wise to work with and help place with families out there. And I just absolutely adored them. Um, They were so fun. And so I was forming my own community through people who went through a very extreme, I I don't even feel like I can put myself within that same category as maybe how they would define their experience. It was a very extreme form of loss of faith in community, both geographically speaking, spiritually speaking, you know, in so many ways. And so I, I found that we most of the time have more things in common than not with people who've left these groups, even extreme situations with someone like me, who it was more of a a spiritual form of abuse, for example. Oh, I see. Right, right. Got it. Okay. I'm wondering also, before we go back to what you were talking about, about, um, about sexuality, what was it like growing up for someone assigned female, someone who identified as female, somebody who was raised with a certain guideline for how they're supposed to be. I'm making an assumption that there were more, there was more structure placed around that for females than males, but I don't know that for sure. So I'm just curious what notions you were raised with as a girl. That's a good assumption. Um, and that's actually correct assumption as it is for many women in these highly conservative Christian groups. You know, I felt like growing up, there was much more pressure on me to be married to someone within the group. There was a lot more conversation surrounding marriage. Being raised in Utah, um, I dated a Mormon for a while, which may sound odd with me not being Mormon, but it really wasn't that much different in terms of like level of conservatism, you know, um, amongst our beliefs. But I know that my family was really worried about me marrying a Mormon if I stayed out in Utah. So, so me going to Florida to go to this college was seen as a, as a positive to hopefully find someone. So there was a lot of discussion around marriage, dating to marry, things of that nature, purity culture, modesty, really intense, things like that. It's not as intense as women who grow up in like the FLDS, who can only wear you know, dresses and can never cut their hair. It wasn't like that kind of intense, but it was still just traditional purity culture norms and messages. And, you know, when it comes to women's roles and power, it was very patriarchal structured. It was women are to stay silent um, in the church setting kind of a thing. Only men could do anything in the service because they, it was seen within this particular group that men have authority over women. And even when it came to teaching Bible classes, this wasn't in every church that I attended where this would be the case, but I, you know, there was instances where 
women could teach like a children's class, for example, um, if they're under a certain age, but if a woman is a teacher and like, let's say a 13 year old boy gets baptized in the Bible class, then this sort of gives him this sort of authority, spiritual authority over the woman, even though they're 13 and she's older. And so the woman can keep teaching, but she typically has to bring in a man. It could be like a husband and wife. And so many husband and wives co-taught. So it, it just, it severely diminished her power, her authority, her, you know, um, in this very patriarchal system. It was quite horrible in that way. You know, women weren't, you know, I, I felt like, especially when I was attending the college I was attending, um, I felt like I was sort of training to be this submissive housewife. <laughs> and, you know, when I was at that college, I, I didn't know what like bisexual meant. You know, I didn't know very normal things about like queer culture and, you know, things that I feel like if you go to a normal college or um, even a like there were kids in my high school who I knew were gay, but when I went to college, it was just like, I was in, immersed in such an intensive environment. I didn't know what any of these things meant. I remember there were some kids at school who, who didn't like know what sex meant, you know? And so that was shocking. And it just kind of demonstrates this very insular nativity, this culture where we're just supposed to get married to someone in the group, have children, and feed into the local churches across the U.S. And my role as someone who was female assigned at birth was to get married and have children. I could still have a career, although depending on the Church of Christ you attend, that could be looked down upon. I think nowadays the narrative has changed a little bit, realizing how difficult it is in this economy to just survive on one income. But there are some churches today that, you know, would look very down on that. Um, if I was making more money than the man, for example, or things like that. So probably very traditional things that you've probably heard about before when interviewing people from these groups. So yes, yes, I have. Yeah. There is an inflexibility I find, and this is just my opinion within certain um, religious forums that I think is problematic. But what happens is I think when you're raised with that, it's then hard to know if you make a decision, if you're going to be making the right one, the wrong one, and being raised with this notion that there is a right decision and a wrong decision or a right way to do it, a wrong way. Opening the world up to this sort of gray amorphous space in between can be fraught with a lot of freedom, but also with a lot of anxiety. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Totally. And, you know, once again, when we think back to those concepts of being a chameleon, when I did start to find my voice and that was largely due to the positive influence of my partner, um, I met Ryan at the school there and, you know, we did speech and debate and, um, we became very dear friends throughout that process, but it w actually took someone like Ryan to help me through learning argumentation and debate, but by watching me and just saying like, I know you have like a fire in there. This mm -hmm. isn't you. Like, I, I know that there's something there. And so Ryan really helped me. It was through our friendship that teach me that I have a voice. And before you know it, my uh, speech and debate partner and I were placing first place all over the Eastern seaboard in debate. 
Um, we were very, very good. We went and competed internationally in Vienna. And a lot of that is due to Ryan and his positive influence and his encouragement. And, um, you know, I had dated uh, someone in the group who, whenever we just got together, we read Bible verses. Like, uh-huh. it's not a sexy thing. Um, <laughs> Aww, that's, so, yeah, you know, no. being with someone who was like, you have this, this inner power, you don't have to be this, this way. You don't have to be this quiet, meek, you know, sort of submissive person who you were taught to be. And so I remember coming home on a college break and I had cut all my hair off. Uh, because I was, you know, kind of going through some like seeking with myself, with my sexual identity and just questioning and um, cut my hair off. I had Ryan with me, um, you know, and my parents were just like in shock because they were like, you know, they went from having that chameleon daughter to someone who was very outspoken about what I believed and what I didn't. And I, I didn't handle this right at the time, but I, I love to point out, you know, we get into these heated conversations where I talk about everything that I would see wrong with certain things. And we get into a lot of fights over small stuff. And my parents were just in shock. And that was honestly one of the most challenging points in our relationship. And from their perspective, I can only imagine, you know, having your daughter come home and being like this new person. And I felt more myself than ever, but probably in their eyes, they're like, who are you? Who did we raise? This isn't who we raised. And so I'm sure that that was really challenging for everyone. Uh, I'm sure. Yeah. I want to actually ask a little bit more about that because yes, they were probably looking at you like, this is not the person we raised, but there was this fear, I think about your trajectory. Oh, totally. Like where, not only who has this person become, but who is she going to continue to become? Maybe there's still that fear. (laughs) I don't know. You know, maybe there's still that fear and bless them. Um, I love my parents very much and uh, they love me very much. And we do have a relationship and I'm grateful for that. But there's probably still some of that fear as to like, you know, where is she going? (laughs) (laughs) What is she doing? (laughs) right Uh, yeah if I mean I think it is true that a lot of parents I say this also as a parent that you need to let go of a certain kind of vision of uh, uh, being able to see where your child is going to go or what you where you think they're supposed to or you know whatever that means and how you were raised yourself but I think you know when you notice them being in shock did they say we're shocked or you could see the look on their face or what happened? Oh no, they, we act, it was like a knockdown drag out discussion. It was horrible. It was a lot of yelling. It was, they didn't know who I was anymore. They, they were just so thrown off by who I came home as and how I was acting after finding my newfound self and you know, it was, it was really scary for them. And it was scary for me that me sort of being more myself and finding confidence was so scary for them. Uh, that was, that was really shocking. And so we had a lot of fights and they were, they were really awful. And, you know, thankfully, um, it's taken a couple of years. Our relationship 
maybe it looks a little bit different now than it did. And there are things that we know we can talk about and things that we know that we just can't talk about because it just wouldn't go anywhere and it wouldn't be healthy for the relationship. But we've kind of had to find that out through trial and error and fights. And, you know, it's been challenging, but I am grateful that I do have a relationship with them. Yeah. And kudos to all of you. Yeah. (laughs) It's hard. Um, It's hard. It's hard. Yeah. It most definitely is. I, although I think that there is something very mature and this again happens in a lot of different contexts where you say, okay, there's some things that are just going to be verboten, like off the table. We just know to not go there because it's just not. Yeah, exactly. And what's kind of good about that. Like when people say, okay, we're going to get together for Thanksgiving. Let's not talk about politics. Let's not talk about mm, social issues, et cetera. But then you get to see how much else there is to talk about. Right. It's actually been really fun. I also feel like now that, you know, they, their children are grown and we're making our own decisions. I've also seen a side of them where they've let their guard down, where they have just I'm like, who are you guys now? Like, <laughs> in a really good way. Okay. Um, you know, when I visit them, it's it's a good time. Um, it doesn't mean that stuff doesn't come up because it definitely does. But it's just like, who are you guys? You're so much more chill and like lax, and you're even drinking a beer now. Like what? Like that? It, it's just it's wild the sort of front that has come down because they don't have to be these perfect parents and examples and impressions on their children. And so I think we all have kind of learned something throughout this process about, you know, shedding those sort of perfectionist ideals and coming into ourselves and what that looks like. And it's also provided an opportunity for them to, you know, I I remember getting in a conversation with one of them and they said, yeah, you remember that like, like church we attended in this state for a while? Like, that was kind of weird. Like, (laughs) like, yeah, it was kind of weird for sure. You know, so we've kind of like talked about things like that on and off. So I think it's just kind of provided a safer space to, for everybody, um, in a very roundabout way. It's good. And, and I think it can't hurt that they see you being happy. Oh, I love, I love showing them how much I'm thriving. I, I just, I absolutely love all FaceTime them and just be like, you know, look what I'm doing. Look where I'm riddling. I'm living in Portland. I'm so happy out here. And I love to show them that I'm thriving. And I think it really helps them and probably their anxieties that they have for my life. And, um, you know, I really do. Right. Right. Cause so much of the opposition that I think people get from their parents is that their parents have been trained to be, uh, really fearful of what will happen to their loved ones should they leave the fold. And if they see them thriving, then what you hope is that they take that in and they say, actually, maybe these fears were unfounded to a great degree. And now I get to kind of relax and breathe and not have to worry. And that can change the dynamic. That's, that's a very, very good thing. Speaking about dynamic, when you're raised in a certain environment that is so controlled, sometimes you don't learn about how to be in relationship with other people. You have, first of all, a a built-in community. So you don't even really need to make friends in the same way that other people do who live more isolated 
ways, but love relationships, boyfriend relationships. I'm thinking of you reading Bible passages. <laughs> you know? Don't you so, love that? I love telling that story. I love it. It's a good I one. <laughs> it is so perfectly structured and emotionless to a great degree. Right. And, um, but safe and predictable and it fits that rubric, you know, so, so perfectly moving out of that into the more messy sphere of what should we talk about and having awkward silences and um, should we touch each other? Should we not just how to navigate all of that? I mean, that must be quite a challenge, just learning how to be in relationship. Yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't. In terms of isolation, I, I didn't grow up isolated. I attended this very small church. Uh, sometimes there was a, a few young people my age there was very rarely young people who I was actually friends with, who I actually wanted to hang out with, who are in the church. Most of the time, I, I didn't even want to do that, um, to be honest, from even a very young age. And it just it just depended. It just depended on the church and the people there at the time. And so I went to a very large public school, um, high school in Caseville, Utah, just like 20 minutes north of Salt Lake City. It is one of the most Mormon concentrated areas to live in in Utah. So while I went to a public school, it was very, very conservative. And, you know, I was like in the 1% of the population that wasn't LDS. I'm not making that up. I was actually like part of the statistics. And so even though I was in a public school, I really just like when it came to church, I just didn't want to be there, man. Even with the friend stuff, you know, occasionally there was someone who I became friends with who I'd have come over, but uh, very rarely did I want to be there or spend any more time there than necessary. <laughs> um, unless there was maybe someone cute in the youth group, then maybe that changed some things. But um, I was fully immersed in like the public school thing. But then again, you know, it's a bunch of bunch of Mormon kids who were very conservative, just like I was. And then when I went to college, it wasn't a normal public school, public university environment. Um, very, very conservative. I could not wear shorts that went above two inches above the knee, you know, to class, I had to wear pants or a dress or skirt. And we're talking Florida. Like I had to wear pants in Florida. I'm going to repeat that one more time. Go back. <laughs> I had to wear pants in Florida or a dress in Florida oh, God. with 170% humidity and 95 degrees. Yes. yes. So if you see me here in Portland, Oregon on a hot day and I'm wearing jeans, it's only because I've endured worse. And I, I do, I'm in a place where I do like pants. So coming back to relationships, it definitely was a challenge. It was always in a very conservative context. Uh, when it came to Ryan um, and my friendship with Ryan, it was like the gloves came off. And I felt like once we got to know each other, we felt this sense of comfort where we didn't feel like we had to be any sort of way. That's when I sort of truly understood what freedom is looking like and feeling like in a relationship. We were still playing by the group's rules, of course. You know, like it just when it came to the purity culture stuff, we were still kind of playing by those rules. But um, that that's when I started to even just feel more emotionally open and comfortable in relationships. And um, relationships is something that, you know, I'm still learning and processing. And I love living in a very, very liberal place in the U S it has really been really fun for me. Portland's a fun place to live anyways, because there's always something really weird happening. 
I've learned a lot even about relationships here in Portland, for example, just being in a totally different context that isn't a hyper-conservative one. And so that's been really fun for me. It's just been fun. Like relationships and life has now been fun. <laughs> I'm so glad. I mean, I, I think about um, growing up in my little community in, in LA and then having a chance to live in Boston and having a chance to live in New York or in England for a little while, but especially I think about working at the Jewish Board of Family and Children's Services at the Cult Hotline and Clinic, where I got to take the subway and just being shoulder to shoulder with everyone from everywhere, doing variety of different things that no one cared about. It was so nice um, because then you felt like you could also just be, and people were not alarmed. People weren't staring. People were just engaged in whatever they were doing, usually reading the newspaper, reading whatever now, probably on their cell phones, but still not being watched, not being evaluated, not having to look over your shoulder, I'm sure is this wonderful relief for you. Yeah. I've just been able to be, and that's been really cool. And even, you know, I mentioned Portland as being a fun context to kind of like just be because everyone's weird here and it's fine. I participated in the naked bike ride, the international naked bike ride out here in Portland. And I had never done anything like that in my entire life coming from a very conservative context. Um, I had never seen naked bodies besides like my own. You know, and it just, it, it was like a wild thing for me to do. It just truly out of my comfort zone. And it's a city structured events. I mean, there's, they stop traffic, there's volunteers, it, it's city sponsored. It's like a whole organized thing. And I went with a friend and I remember being so nervous. I kept explaining to her, like, I haven't done this before and here's why. And like, I was in this, you know, I was born and raised really conservative and I was just like, so stressed. And then when I got there, and we were just like, just like hundreds of like us just being naked and it being fine. I honestly, that moment in my life was a really big part of just, you know, not giving a shit. <laughs> and I had such a wonderful time and it was actually really funny. I, I, my poor parents, if you're listening parents, I'm really sorry, but I remember telling them this story, knowing that I was going to get some sort of shock. Like I probably told them just to see the the funny reactions. And I found them just like laughing together, you know, later on in the day. And I was like, what's like, what are you guys laughing about? And they're like, we're just laughing at your story of how you attended this naked bike ride. And we're just like, you know, imagining the, the chaos that ensued. They were just like, they thought it was really funny. Like, they're like, oh yeah, we can see you doing something like that, you know? <laughs> uh, but I just, yeah. So Portland's been a really fun, you know, I, I think where you live can be a factor for sure. And sometimes one that we think about, but maybe not one that we yield a lot of attention to and helping our own sort of journeys to self-expression. I think there's something really important about it, which is, well, first of all, it's funny because I think as um, a parent, when I think about people doing naked bike riding, of course, I'm just thinking, I'm hoping that they're wearing sunscreen. I just don't want anyone. <laughs> it happens sunburn. at night. It ha happens oh, at good. night. Kids. So good. Okay, yeah. good. I'm yeah. glad because there's going to be parts <laughs> of you that are exposed suddenly to the sun that are not used to being exposed. And I'm worried about people getting sunburned. I don't know why that's where my mind went. 
But what what's interesting about that is, um, yeah, it is going to be outside your comfort zone. It's going to be outside most people's comfort zone because they've been socialized to cover themselves. But what matters there, I think, is the interesting piece, which is being able to kind of prioritize what matters and what doesn't. So what matters is probably not that people are wearing clothes or not, but that there's a sense of community and support and fun if people are nice to each other or if they cut each other off on a bike, well, that's the thing that would matter. Not if you're wearing something or not like the things that matter probably are the things that should matter, how people treat each other. And so when you're raised though, with so many rules and so much structure, it's hard to prioritize then as you move away from that, what you think still matters and what shouldn't or what maybe shouldn't ever have mattered more than other things or in equal measure to other things. So I just wonder about that, about you giving yourself that opportunity to refocus on what you're going to be focused on, like what matters to you. The event is to support body positivity lots of different body types, but also, um, to protest fossil fuels, you know, Portland's a big bike city. So that that's what that was about. But I was, I was making friends with people. It was just a very overwhelming, positive experience for me. And it was, it was one of those really defining moments and me being pushed outside of my comfort zone. And like you said, focusing on the things that are important and the things that aren't so important. And, you know, um, it, it just, it was a great time. I'm glad you're you're giving yourself these opportunities. And yeah, it does mean kind of pushing through the initial discomfort of it. Okay, so now I'm curious. I want to kind of hand this over to you too, just in terms of what your further chronology was sort of as you left and getting involved with ICSA and your studies and what you've put together so people can see all that you are all that you've learned and what you've crafted in order to help others through this process. Oh, wow. So, okay. So when I started with ICSA, Pat Ryan and Joe Kelly kind of adopted me. (laughs) I don't know how to put it any other way. Uh, It was actually uh, Michael Langoni who suggested to Pat that they like get to know me and like help me navigate this field, because, you know, we talked about earlier, it's, it can be, um, a lot to just come into fresh and not understand. And, you know, I remember being at the conference in Manchester, it was the annual conference. I think it was maybe 2020. And I was just so tired. It was my first conference. I had really just gotten hired, moved to Florida and, the director was sick. So I went to the conference and didn't know what I was doing, but was having a great time sort of flailing around and being really tired and just meeting a bunch of people and connecting. And it was very overwhelming, but in very positive ways. And at the end of the night, uh, when I hadn't eaten all day, because <laughs> I hadn't had time, Pat, Pat and Joe would be like, uh, take an Uber to this address. We'll have spaghetti ready. You know, we'll have like food ready. It was it was wonderful. So that's how I got to know them. And the reason why I say all this is because they have greatly influenced the work that I do now. I work with them uh, pretty actively. We're in communication almost every day, talking about you know things. And I'm really grateful that during my time at ICSA, Pat Ryan volunteered so much time to help me on various projects. That was 
really cool um, because, you know, ICSA can be so volunteer run, um, as you know. And so it was really wonderful to have that kind of support. And um, I remember talking, you know, I, I would go and visit them. I've probably visited them at least once a year um, over in Philly. And I was in Philly. It was like my first time visiting them. And we went to the Navy Yard, I believe. Yeah, it was the Navy Yard. Uh, just checking that out. And Joe and I, we tried out some of the hammocks at the Navy Yard. I saw Joe flip out of a hammock. I couldn't stop laughing. I almost peed my pants. I, I, I could not stop laughing because Joe flipped upside down in a hammock. I was a horrible friend, horrible friend. But we're at the Navy Yard <laughs> getting into shenanigans. And I sit down with them and I, I just kind of look at them and I'm like, I want to be doing the work that you do. And I know that I'm young. You know, I know that I'm like just kind of starting out in this field, but a lot of the work that I did prior to ICSA was working with families, whether it was getting power of attorney from one family to place their child with another family um, who wasn't in the FLDS, for example. I would uh, meet with people who were actively in the FLDS who wanted their children to be in a different environment for whatever reason. I would help the child, um, the teenager, whomever be placed with a family and help them navigate sort of the cultural shock of the situation. And so I was very comfortable dealing with high intensity family situations and helping them understand what this person had been through. And so I feel like my experience has been very unique in that I've been very fortunate to have so much hands-on with that already. And I remember talking with Pat and Joe way back when and just being like, I'd love to do this work. And I remember Joe Kelly looked at me and was just like, I feel like you would, you would be great at this work. But fast forward, you know, I continue to do the work that I was doing with Ixta. It was more administrative work. You know, I was doing more event stuff and, um, uh, I was still running like recovery events, which I enjoyed, but it was definitely more of an administrative thing. And I decided during the pandemic, if working full-time with ICSA wasn't enough, I'd like kill myself further and go get my, like attend school full-time to get my master's in the psychology of course of control. And that program was through the University of Salford in the UK. Um, I had known the program leads, Rod and Linda, uh, for some time. And I had a chance to actually connect with them in person, not only in Philadelphia way back in 2019, but at our conference in Manchester. And I talked with them about the program and kind of what I was thinking. And that program was really good at, you know, I, I came into the program having a lot of real life experience with these populations already. So that program really just provided an academic structure and insight into things that I had already been working hands-on with, but it was further clarifying for me in that way. And, you know, during that program, I just knew that like, I wanted to get my master's and this program seemed perfect based off of my experiences. I wanted to sort of take that to the next level. I did my research and I just presented a webinar on my research actually on the relationship between reproductive coercion, psychologically abusive environments, and the extent of group identity in a sample of those who've left cultic groups. And it was like the first quantitative exploratory analysis of the source of control within cultic settings of reproductive coercion. So I'm really excited and proud of the research that I've done. There's a huge research gap on this. And um, my next step is to get that published in a journal. But 
you know, I, I'm really happy that I did the program, even though it was, um, a lot to do full-time and a lot to do ICSA full-time, but I made it. And I remember when I submitted my dissertation, I just kind of sat there and cried. And then the next week I, I had sort of this, my brain was melting. I I put the coffee pot in the refrigerator. (laughs) You guys know what that's like when you've been working on a big thing. And that's where all the pressure has been for the past like year and like months and weeks. And then your brain just like melts when it's done. It like doesn't even know how to function. So I finished that and ICSA was very supportive of my studies. Uh, They were encouraging uh, with that. And, you know, I had been working with ICSA for about three years and um, there, there was a lot of reasons for my transition into what I'm doing now, but I had been gradually doing more and more casework with Pat and Joe during the pandemic um, over the past you know, year or so. Um, they'd bring me into cases doing different things, even if it was just a little thing here or there, doing research or um, helping the family with a very specific thing. For those of you who don't know, they uh, run Intervention 101, Cult Mediation and Cult News 101. They've done intervention work with Rachel, for example. And I just really enjoyed helping in whatever ways I could. I just was eating up any experience. And, you know, when I left ICSA, I decided to start my own LLC and it's called People Leave Cults. And I have continued to receive oversight um, and supervision with my mentors, which is wonderful through doing that work. Um, it's a very similar approach in which, you know, if I were to receive a case, it would be a team approach. I don't feel like one person should be informing any sort of mediation intervention work. I enjoy having, I enjoy playing this role of sort of interventionists or whatever you want to call it, you know, consultants and collaborating with mental health professionals and people in varying specialties. You know, I love collaborating and coming together to see what we can do to help the family. And so I've continued to work on cases with Pat and Joe. I've finally gotten to the point where I have been through all the assessment phases and their interviews with family members and I've just absolutely loved it. And I'm excited to continue getting that supervision from them with my own LLC and also collaborating with, you know, maybe some new therapists or people who are interested in the field. We're a little biased with Pat and Joe. We're very, we really appreciate the work that they do. And Oh yeah. Pat and Joe are two of my favorite people. They're good friends and they're, and they're really good and thoughtful and thorough. You know, they care about families they work with and, um, and wanting to be able to be helpful and they have been doing interventions for decades and it's nice to be brought in as the you know the counselor the person who has psychological background into the cases that they're doing and it gives me a chance to hang out with them uh also and just schmooze every once in a while but what i think is really nice is that there is this next generation of people who are learning who care and that there's a certain amount of freedom, I think, that you get to enjoy. I remember not being able to enjoy early on. I couldn't call something a cult. Uh, I had to worry about being sued if I use the word, even though that's the field I was in. I couldn't talk about Scientology ever uh, because they were after me and parked in front of my house. So the fact that now that there's a community that has banded together 
it becomes more of a force to be reckoned with where you don't have to succumb to the pressure the bullies kind of put on you. It's a really wonderful thing. I'm also, you know, I get a lot of requests from a lot of therapists who want to learn how to do this work because, you know, Rod and Linda have put together this program, which is phenomenal in England. And there are people who may or may not be able to be involved in it or are not looking for a master's program, but are looking to know how to help the client who came to their office and to figure out how to work with them. So I'm also going to be putting together some webinars for that to help do some training and fill in those blanks. Because I, I've found, and maybe you've seen this too, that when you, people have had a cultic experience and they go to a therapist who isn't schooled in it, through no fault of their own, because it's not available in almost every place, that that therapist will often just keep changing the subject or say, oh, well, I don't know if I you know, can get into that because that's not my thing, but let's talk about your mom or something. Let's talk about something else. And I value when clinicians contact me when they've contacted ICSA, when they're going to be in contact with you, with your new or your new LLC organization saying, I want to be a resource. I want to help clients or I want to help the client I have now learn how to do this because it's a nuanced kind of work, you know, and I think you learn by, by doing it and by learning from other people who have done it. You really have to learn by doing it. And what you're talking to is one of the biggest challenges, right? Because when we're dealing with families in crisis, even bringing in someone who can sort of shadow or be mentored in that process, that could be very difficult in how many more characters you're adding to the mix that the family has to interact with. Um, And so it can be very hard to find ways to get involved and be brought in. I would love to find a way to do that more in a way that is, you know, careful uh, with the families and respectful of the intense emotions that they're experiencing. I don't feel like this work should be gatekept, if that makes sense. Like, I, I really feel like this knowledge is for, you know, I, I feel like it should be more accessible, but it's finding ways in which we can do that can be really challenging and even economically, right? You know, when a family is paying for the exit counselor, the therapist, and if we need to bring in anyone in addition, that can add up. And so even having someone there who's just mentoring or listening in, or it, it can be really hard because you want to make sure that people are compensated for their time um, and treated fairly. So bringing people in and having them learn as you go is one of the greater challenges to this work. And certainly, you know, within the program, we did talk about doing exit work a little bit. I so appreciate the therapist and being in the lane that I'm in and knowing my limitations and having the specialty and course of control. And also my age has been really attractive. I feel like for clients um, I've received, you would almost think because I'm so young, I could almost pass as one of these clients, like children in terms of age, you know, like I'm a similar age as their kid who's in a group or why would they care what I have to say? Or why would they call me? But oftentimes they call me the most because I am the same age as, you know, their child who's in a group. And I think it's refreshing to them to talk to somebody who is very calm and level-headed about this stuff. And, um, you know, I try to be really hopeful with families when it comes to this stuff. The more people that we can get involved in this work, the better. But it's finding a really delicate way to go about that, that is fair to the families 
Um, and of course, you know, what they're paying and is fair to the therapists and being supervised and it is a challenge. So I'm happy to hear that you're putting together some webinars for therapists specifically and getting involved. I think that's wonderful. Yeah. I feel like, you know, finally, uh, you know, when a light bulb goes off where you realize over the last few years, um, I've received a lot of calls and a lot of emails from clinicians knowing also that sometimes people are coming to because of the experience they've had with their therapist or with their coach, with their quote unquote healer, you know, and how, um, how do you work with someone who has been abused or mistreated and controlled by a previous therapist and help them feel safe with you? So there's so many um, unique challenges to this work. And I, in deference to, and, and in all humility to my clients, have learned most of what I know from them, from what has worked and what hasn't. And I think it's important in any field for a clinician or anyone to be open to being wrong and saying, well, okay, I applied what I learned at wherever, you know, USC, where I went, and it didn't work in this context. So it's not that the client isn't doing it right. (laughs) It, it, It must be because that's, it's a square peg round hole situation. It doesn't fit here. So what does fit? And let me be open to that. And so I've accrued a lot of, a lot of information from clients. And so I want to be able to give that back to the people out there who need the help, you know, in the future. When you're also talking about reproductive rights, I'm thinking of the first client I ever had at the cult clinic in Los Angeles, which is unfortunately was not, not there long enough. Um, a woman uh, who had eight kids who was in the children of God and she was in her early thirties and she already had eight children. Every father was different and she had given birth in almost every country and then squalor in almost every different country. And there was no choice about it. You know, some, some cases stay with you forever, but especially initially going into this work, you're thinking, what is this? Well, how can this happen? And how could this be seen as God's will? Really? Like, how did that become part of the um, equation here to justify it all? So I'm very glad that you're covering that subject. Yeah. It's honestly, um, it's made me really happy, you know, as someone who's considered myself a feminist and, um, but I was, I was very happy to, to, um, you know, the way in which I worded the study was if you identified as female during your time in the group, then you were eligible to participate. And, you know, because of that, I had non-binary and trans individuals who participated, which I'm really excited about because so often their experiences are not part of the research when it comes to reproductive issues. But when you think about it, like how many people do we know who uh, may have identified as female when they were in the group and then since leaving the group, um, either transitioned or identify as uh, something else. So it was really cool for me to, you know, receive some research from that population as a part of these studies on you know, even just looking at the larger conversations surrounded reproductive coercion, it, it was a really cool thing to kind of help acquire some of those marginalized voices as well. Really happy to have had the opportunity to do that study. And I feel like it does connect with so many people who've experienced groups. And, you know, while doing my presentation, it it's powerful and that I've had people reach out to me and say, I didn't know that I experienced reproductive coercion until your presentation. And so that's really powerful. 
as well. So I'm very grateful to have been able to do that research. Very powerful. So before we finish up, I think, you know, this idea that people said they didn't know that that's what they had been through. That happens a lot. Happens a lot. You feel it for that person. You know, when people tell you that, that's something that is such not a, it's not a light matter, right? That's, that's very serious. And you think about them having to process that and I'm, I'm here if anyone wants to talk or, you know, if you need a connection to speak to a therapist, I'll be happy to pass along connections that I have. Um, but it is, it's, it's, it's very hard. Right. I think also helping people define what that is. So they know if it applies to them or not, and then they'll know why they're having those feelings or after effects, like being able to define abuse, being able to define neglect. Uh, for people who don't know they experienced it, but don't know why they're having nightmares. So let people know how they can find what you're doing, how they can reach you. And I love, I, I, I love knowing also that you're right. It's sort of the beginning of something that is going to be growing and developing and people get to watch that happen as well, which is awesome. Yeah. It's really wonderful because I'm, you know, I'm able to cultivate and grow people leave cold slowly. Um, I'd rather do it right than do it quickly. (laughs) And so being able to do that slowly with time is wonderful. And in the meantime, I'm still working on cases with Pat and Joe as they come up. Um, and so you can find me at, uh, peopleleavecolts.com and there's a contact form on the site and it goes into a little bit about uh, my approach uh, the ethical guidelines that I adhere to and some of the history of, um, intervention work and what that looks like. And I also, you can, you're welcome to email me at a Hilliard at people I'm on social media and you can find my latest webinar presentation on the people leave Colts YouTube channel. All right. Well, so thank you. It was really nice to see you. Yeah. It was so nice to see you. I was really happy that we had some time to chat. All right. Wonderful to talk to you. Hope to talk to you again soon. It's so good to see you. Thank you for this opportunity. One more thing before you go. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Ashlyn. It was so nice to speak with you. I think it is really important when you hear from someone like Ashlyn, who was raised a particular way and has found a way to leave something that she wasn't wanting to have define her, that it really didn't represent who she was and who she is. And it isn't the life that she really would have chosen for herself, nor is it the life that she thinks would make her happy now. What Ashlyn gets to do now is she gets to be her. She gets to be able to be who she is in many ways, supposed to be. But you can't really be that if you're involved in a group where you are defined, where you are told how you are supposed to be, how you're supposed to behave, what you're supposed to feel, what you're supposed to believe, but also what your rights are, but especially as a woman in the group. One of the things that Ashlyn talked about was that she has learned to be a chameleon. That's actually a skill. That's not a bad skill. It's something that people learn when they are figuring out ways as they're growing up 
to be socially appropriate in certain environments. It's why you know that at a party, you don't just sit by yourself and read a picture book or pet the family's dog, even though that is often how I spent parties when I was younger and more introverted, but that you learn to behave like the people around you. And when you go into a library, you know that you're supposed to be quiet. You learn to shift who you are in that moment, not at your core, but you learn to pass. You learn to behave like, to behave like the people around you so that you don't stand out. That is social adaptation. That is an important thing. What happens, though, is that when people do that to an extreme, they lose sight of who they are in any consistent way internally. They know that they can change the color of their scales to match the people around them. They know that their chameleon ways will help them fit in. But if they are becoming one animal after another, after another, if they're becoming one color after another, after another, based on their environment, then at the end of the day, what people are left with a lot of the time is that they can look at themselves in the mirror and really be disoriented and wonder who they really are. What is their true nature? What is their true color? If you're thinking about the chameleon metaphor. The thing that happens not only is disorientation, but a lot of fear. If I don't transform myself, if I don't start to look and behave like the people around me, will I be acceptable? Will I be accepted? Will I be seen as okay? At what point do I get to feel that I am acceptable? At what point do I get to feel that I am unconditionally accepted and acceptable. And if you're busy kind of twisting yourself into a pretzel to fit into one environment after another, you don't actually get a chance to be around people who say, you know what? You don't actually have to do that. You really are okay the way you are. You don't have to dress like everyone. You don't have to talk like everyone. You don't have to say that you believe like everyone. You can be you and we will love you. Most people in fundamentalist religions, most people in cultic groups too, most people in very controlled environments of any sort don't have a chance to ever hear that. One of the things that's very powerful for a lot of people who have been on this show is that they have heard from the general public and the general public through me, and I pass these messages along to my guests when they come in, will say, I think that guest is wonderful. I'm so glad that she or he is getting to express who they really are. They are really fantastic. And it's really a shame they didn't get to be that and be themselves before. There's a really nice thing that's happened with a lot of people on the show where they really feel like they were worried about revealing their true selves before they came on and after they're so happy they did. Not that you have to use this as the forum to do this. You don't have to. I just hope you have a chance to have this in your life outside too, that there are people in your life who just love you for you. And then you don't have to be a chameleon. You don't have to change. You get to understand that you get to be and that that's enough. So Ashlyn really is a wonderful person who has started a wonderful organization. Check out everything that she's doing. She is someone who has a great amount of energy and a great amount of caring and really wants to help so many people. And it is from my bias, 
and my vantage point, a really nice thing to see when someone who has been through something says, I want to work to make sure other people don't go through the same. I'll talk to you next week. Thank you very much for listening. Please support Indoctrination on Patreon at patreon.com slash indoctrination. Be sure to give us a follow on our social media. Find us on Facebook and Instagram using at Indoctrination Podcast. And for Twitter, find us at at underscore indoctrination. We love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. And for more updates on the show, visit our website at www.podpage.com forward slash indoctrination.